This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down Take-Two Interactive. If you listen to our business breakdown on Electronic Arts, Take-Two is another giant in the video game publishing space. They are best known for their Grand Theft Auto and 2K franchises. To break down Take-Two, I'm joined by Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting. Eric spent multiple decades inside the video game market, both as an investor and as an operator, and we tap into his perspective from both sides of the table. We drilled into historic IP, the strategy behind new releases, and what mobile means for the market, and specifically for Take-Two. Please enjoy this breakdown of Take-Two. All right, Eric, I'm excited for this one. You bring a very unique background to this business breakdown. You spent basically half your career in industry, half your career in the investment world. You're still involved in both worlds, which I think is ideal for these types of conversations. So as we're talking about Take-Two, we're basically going to jump back and forth in terms of inside the industry perspective and then investment perspective. Maybe we could just start out with a simple introduction of Take-Two. We know they're a video game publisher, but what would you say they're best known for and what differentiates them? Fundamentally, Take-Two has some of the marquee current franchises, which include Grand Theft Auto from their Rockstar division and NBA 2K, which is an annual basketball game. I think that's what they're most well known for. And then they have a bunch of other franchises that I think have been a bit nascent over the past 10 years, actually. And their recent acquisition of Zynga adds the mobile layer. But that's kind of a new thing for them. Yeah, we can get into that. We covered EA on a separate breakdown and introduced the idea of what it means to be a video game publisher. We also did this industry overview on mobile gaming. Maybe you could talk a little bit about where Take-Two fits into that ecosystem. It sounds like they have some historical IP, these franchises that have been associated with console games. The recent acquisition of Zynga, is this a bigger push for them into mobile? When you think about the company and what they'll be looked at in the next five to 10 years, how big of a piece is mobile going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of pressure for getting into mobile because mobile has become a much a bigger part of the overall gaming industry. Almost 50% of the revenue worldwide is from mobile. And maybe it's like 25 or 30% for the West, which is important distinction, frankly. So I think Strauss has been really trying to push into mobile and they've done a lot of smaller acquisitions that were literally too rinky-dink to really make any type of meaningful impact. And then ultimately he ended up acquiring Zynga, which I think was a really dumb acquisition, but he ended up acquiring Zynga, which was one of the bigger independent publishers and publicly traded, obviously. And that's launched him into a business, which frankly, I don't think Strauss really understands because the fact is no one wanted to acquire Zynga at that valuation of that level, given all the headwinds for mobile that are showing their ugly face right now. But going forward, it is going to be a big part of their business, but I think it's going to be declining asset for them, which will be an albatross on them going forward. 
Can you elaborate that on a little bit in terms of headwinds that mobile faces versus what exists in console and PC that differentiates it? Basically, mobile games have been driven by user acquisition for the last decade. People have been optimizing around that since my Kabam days, figuring out ways of UA arbitrage in which you buy users for a certain amount and you earn something back. Apple became completely hostile against these type of user acquisition tactics and targeting and removing IDFA has removed the ability for them to target the audiences that they need in order to continue to grow the business. So last year, after a decade of almost 20% growth year on year, the business was down 10%. You can attribute some of that to a tough COVID comp, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that Apple just completely screwed over the ecosystem with their IDFA removal of the ability to target. And that's the biggest headwind. And these changes are not over, right? They are removing fingerprinting. Google is changing their processes, which will make identifying and targeting more challenging. And so there's just absolute crazy headwinds. Now, the market this year is actually only declining around 3% so far because of new titles. But we will see the impact of removing fingerprinting towards the end of the year. And so we should still see 5 to 10% declines in the mobile business over the next two years, which is impacting basically everybody in the industry. Yeah, it doesn't seem like privacy and all the changes that happen around privacy are going anywhere or moving in a direction that would be more freeing for the mobile game publishers. That's my main point on this podcast and talking to investors is that Apple could give a shit about mobile publishers. They don't care at all about that. Their goal is to sell phones. By having this privacy message, I think it's very much differentiated them from their biggest competitor, which is Google or Samsung, etc., is that Apple has the most secure phones because they are removing the ability to target individuals, right? And so it's really, really, really good for Apple, but it's absolutely terrible for the mobile publishers and the mobile industry in general. But Apple doesn't care, right? That's not their business. Actually, there's a lot of reasons why they do care that there are a lot of publishers that were getting way too much control over their store because they were manipulating the algorithm to get people into there, like the uh, super casual games, the hyper casual industry, social casino. All these people were leveraging the abilities on their platform. That's something that they wanted to fight. And this has been the big challenge is that Apple is just rolling over them with these crazy privacy things for literally a marketing message. So... Take-Two has stepped into the mobile world recently, and stepped in is probably an understatement. They dove into the mobile world with that acquisition. But maybe we could start at the beginning. I know it was founded in the early 90s. Can you talk about how they've evolved since those early days? They obviously have some really big, important franchises that are a big piece of this. How did those come together and any major milestones that you would point to over the history of Take-Two and basically how that's coincided with the industry as well? The way I look at it from an investment perspective is there's been three fundamental shifts in the industry, all of which have been adopted and taken on by the big publishers in the business, right? Initially, the game business was PC and console, right? PC console drove most of the industry. And that's when we see the rise of like Sony, Nintendo, Activision, EA, Ubisoft, and Take-Two, obviously, in part of that. And from a Japanese perspective, you see Konami, Sega, Capcom. So those are the publicly traded companies, and they were primarily in packaged goods, PC, and console, right? So selling games and Midnight Club and all the old franchises that Take-Two has, that was kind of their thing. And then GTA, Red Dead Redemption, all that was all part of that 
era. Mobile really started to impact the industry in 2011 and 2012. And again, as I said earlier, it's grown to almost 50% of the business worldwide. And that included like Zynga, Glue, Playtika, Applovin, King, which was acquired by Activision, and then Unity, IronSource, and Stillfront are the other ones from the mobile space. Again, importantly, in Asia, then mobile became absolutely massive. And then we have Tencent, NetEase, Nexon, and Netmarble. And that created a whole other group of game companies to be part of this industry. For the last 10 years, and this is the part in which Take-Two has benefited probably the most over the years, has been the rise of microtransactions and software as a service in the video game space, making these games more like SaaS businesses as opposed to hit-driven packaged goods businesses. So games like Call of Duty and FIFA and Madden and NBA 2K from Take-Two as well as GTA they now are like ongoing revenue streams in which the revenue per user has gone up absolutely dramatically. That has helped fuel the last couple cycles of this industry with a bigger portion of it as digital software as a service compared to full game packaged goods sales. And now new companies are emerging from this like Roblox and Epic, which Epic should go public in the next few years. And then finally, moving forward, what's to come? We have VR and AR and cloud gaming and blockchain, which I think are part of nascent platforms. I don't think these will have that much of an impact in the next five to 10 years, but I'm of the minority on that opinion, I think. But you take all the hype away from the VC and the investments by big tech companies, and you see that these platforms are really not really all that viable. And in terms of just what differentiates console and PC versus mobile, I would imagine it's something like compute capacity and what you're actually able to do in terms of graphics. But what else would you point to in terms of it having staying power versus something like mobile continuing to take share or some of these new products coming in and actually getting proper product market fit adoption, all of that and starting to eat into share? I think the fundamental thing you have to think about from the console space is that it is all focused on AAA game development. And it all is focused on the West. And it is primarily being driven by 18 to 44-year-old males. That is a very distinct market. And in some ways, it's a limited market. And these games that take to 2K, basketball, GTA, these are boys that have become men that play these games. And what's great about that market is that they're willing to spend whatever it takes, right? Buying a console is nothing to them for their entertainment. They have a lot of dispensable income that they're willing to spend insane amounts of money for these IPs and these game experiences. Mobile, on the other hand, has that same market to some degree, but expands it much more beyond that, right? It's much bigger market, more women, obviously, a lot bigger in terms of the age demographics. So it's almost unlimited, but it's also not that premium, right? So there are far less people that are, as a percentage, that are spending a significant amount of money in that space. In some sense, the conversion is the limiting factor on mobile. That's what limits the ability for them to proceed. Not to mention, obviously, it's not AAA, right? A lot of the content on mobile, although some of it's very AAA, the majority of the content that makes money on mobile is not AAA. It's actually 95%, I would estimate, is driven by non-AAA production value. When I was at Kabam, everyone was talking about how mobile was going to just take over and destroy console, but that was never going to happen because you're going to basically have to pull the PS5 out of the cold, dead hands of those loyal fan base and to remove that type of experience from them. And mobile is not going to satisfy that at all for that audience. You mentioned some of these titles, Call of Duty, Madden, Grand Theft Auto. These have been around for years since I was a teenager, even a young boy. 
and they're still around. It seems like a lot of the titles that have become the biggest that are these iconic forms of IP have been around for a while. I'm just curious, is it incredibly difficult to launch new IP that will become iconic? Am I just noticing that and attributing it to me and missing some of these new titles that have launched more recently that have gained a lot of market share? I'm just curious, when you think about IP and how valuable it is to have those franchises versus the ability for someone to come up and create a new franchise that's actually going to compete with that, what does that landscape look like and what does that actually entail? It's almost impossible. That's the sad truth, right? We are at a AAA gaming space, right? So AA, there's not much market for AA anymore. I've been doing strategy consulting around game development and strategy for Warner Brothers and others. And that's what it comes down to is these budgets are like over 100 to 200, even $300 million for games to be competitive even. Something like GTA is probably like four or 500, maybe even 600 just to bring it to market, right? So there's no one that really competes with that at all, period. James Cameron competes with that with his movies, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that's the type of investment that's required, right? To be competitive. Now, having said that, there have been a few games that have come kind of out of the woodwork, Mioho with their games, you know, but they are spending 300, 200, 300 million dollars to build these games, Genshin Impact, and they have a new game recently. And those are somewhat competing at the same level as AAA. But again, these investments are made and they're spending rumored like 300, 400 million dollars on marketing. Now, Again, there are some surprise hits that come out of nowhere that gets lots of traction, but they're fewer and far between because the expectation of the customer is so high that it's just impossible to be competitive against the entrenched competitors. So that is more of a challenge. And that actually is an advantage for the big publishers that have these huge IPs that continue to deliver year after year. It creates quite a moat for the big game developers. And you've been in the system, so you've seen how this works. When I hear something like 300 million of that budget is marketing, it is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy such that it's historical IP, it's going to get that marketing budget. No smaller game is going to get something or anywhere close to that marketing budget. So naturally, those big IP names are going to continue to hold the top of the charts. I'm just curious, in the earlier days, what drove the winners? Obviously, there's just sales and Grand Theft Auto was a hit almost immediately, something I heard of. But there were other games and maybe it's in my imagination, but games like Metal Gear Solid, which felt like it was a huge hit at the time, but kind of fell on its wayside. And I haven't heard much about it recently. So what differentiated some of those names in terms of those that lasted and persisted versus those that fell off? A lot of times, historically, back when I was at EA in like the 2000s, I think 98 was when I started at EA. God, I'm getting old. But it was all about publishing, right? It was all about distribution. It was all a retail-driven business. It was about what relationships you had with the retailers in North America, and particularly Europe, which was much more complicated in terms of distribution because you had to have local people on the ground for every of the major countries, UK, Germany, France, Spain, etc. So EA and Take-Two and Activision all differentiated themselves on being able to reach all the different retail sites. So where we stand today with Take-Two, you mentioned you have these two marquee franchises, Grand Theft Auto, NBA 2K. What percentage of the overall business do you think they represent? That's a good question. Now, with Zynga, it changes the calculus a little bit, but it is a very significant portion, if not their revenue, certainly of their profit. And I don't think they report it that way, so it'd have to be an estimate, but it is very, very significant. 
basically the only thing that's profitable from my perspective in business is those two franchises. Take-Two's business is very simple in that way because all you really need to do is track what 2K is doing and GTA and you'll probably get 80, 90% of the story. Yep. Usually businesses come down to a few simple things. It certainly seems like the case here. What does Zynga represent now that it's consolidated? And we can start out with the top line because it sounds like there may be a different story between top line and bottom line impact. I think that they're what, 2 billion out of the 5.3 billion. So that's, yeah, about 40% of the business on a revenue basis. Now, of course, their profitability is a lot lower. And you talked a little bit about the improved visibility or the adjusted business model, which is basically resembling SaaS and something that you can sell almost like software with updates. And it's almost a free-to-play model where you can monetize that user over and over again without them having to go to a store, whether that's digital or physical. How much visibility is there year to year? If you're an investor trying to model this business out, how much visibility do you have one year out, two years out in terms of depending on those historical games to deliver numbers? For the sports games, it's pretty much almost 100% guarantee that you're going to get significant amount of revenue for both the packaged goods as well as the digital sales. It'll fluctuate over time. The one thing great about basketball in general is that the popularity of that franchise continues to grow worldwide. So while the US is probably still growing to some degree because the popularity is better for NBA versus baseball, for instance, or hockey, et cetera. But in Eastern Europe, it's big growth vector. In LATAM, there's more interest in basketball. And then Asia, of course, there's getting more and more interested in China and other places. That keeps the tailwind going. So you can almost anticipate perpetual growth for the foreseeable future for that franchise. For something like GTA, obviously, it ebbs and flows with the content cadence of how they release content. Also, their bigger content releases, whether it's content patches. And then obviously, if new game came out, which is a big anticipation over the next year or so, and the reason the stock is doing extremely well, that's going to drive huge levels of adoption. But there's also complexity and issues around that. Like, how much does that cannibalize the existing game? How big is that market? How well do they monetize the audience? Uh, those are the questions that got to need to be answered or have to have an opinion on as an analyst. Bring us in the room a little bit for that, because I imagine with something like 2K, it's an annual release similar to something like Madden. But for something like Grand Theft Auto, it's a much trickier situation. I think there was a historical release schedule way back when in the early 2000s, late 90s, when I was around. And it was often related to new console systems being released. But how do they think through the release of a new game, whether it's the fifth version, the sixth version, and all the moving parts that go into that? Okay, that's a very complicated question. So Rockstar used to have multiple teams, but it feels nowadays they have one team. And they basically are, are iterating against Red Dead Redemption and GTA. So Red Dead Redemption came out a few years ago, and it did very well on the packaged goods side, but the services side did not do well. And part of the reason is because no one wants to own a new saddle or build a cart that versus you look at GTA and you have a McLaren or a Bugatti or a Porsche, and you're collecting that, right? The differences between those two is pretty dramatic. So there's no real chase for the customer in a Red Dead Redemption world. On the flip side, owning an amazing crib and amazing cars and boats and stuff like that makes a lot of sense on the GTA side. So the Red Dead did extremely well. But now, the last five or six years, they've been developing GTA. And so that game is imminent, right? 
and they still have not announced that game for the record, right? But Strauss, in all his wisdom, and him managing Wall Street, he basically intimidated that it is coming out next year because they're going to grow revenue from five point three billion to eight point three billion or eight billion next year somehow, some magically, something's going to happen. That game is coming out next year. And so what will have to happen is they will have to figure out a way of transitioning existing GTA users to the new GTA and or bring old players back to the new GTA. But what we do know for almost absolute certainty is that it will sell a gajillion units, like probably between 25 and 30 million units just by coming out. It can be the worst game ever, but that game is so hotly anticipated and they will build up the hype so much that that's almost a guarantee that they will sell that many units. But the question is, what happens afterwards? That could be actually a little bit more debated. Five to six years feels like a long time to me. Is that the norm or is it on the longer side of things? That's on the shorter side. (laughs) You have to imagine these games are absolutely massive, right? In scope and scale. Like no one could actually recreate building a GTA in the world, except for maybe the Chinese. Like Miyoho, people have talked about that a little bit out there, is that probably they could throw like thousands of Chinese developers to build something like GTA, it still would not have probably the gravitas of a world created by Rockstar. They are very, very good at making these type of worlds. And that differentiates this product from any other product that comes out. I have to ask the question, why not just announce the game? If you're going to put that in the estimates, this may be a silly question. You might not know the answer. But if you're going to have to lower the estimates because the game's not coming out, you're going to have to lower the estimates. So why do you think Part of it's that Strauss has absolutely no control over Rockstar. Zero. Absolutely zero. He has no control about when they come out with games, when they release stuff. He gave up that control long ago because that's the type of deal that they did with the Hauser brothers is that they own. He doesn't know really. Right. And so in some ways, there's no 100 percent guarantee the game comes out next year. And actually gun to my head, I don't think it's coming next year. I think likely it'll come out in May of 25. Right. That's when it'll come out their next fiscal year. So they'll miss it most likely because I think they will have some issues that they have to like iron out. And Rockstar is going to do it when it's ready. They don't give a crap about earnings releases or quarterly. So this is just Strauss managing Wall Street, full stop. And they've done it a million times. And he's really, 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 really good at it. He's not so good at acquisitions, but he's very, very good at managing Wall Street. So yeah, Rockstar will announce it when they're ready to announce it. That's kind of the answer to your question. And we haven't seen an announcement from them yet. I actually thought that it was going to come out like at this time frame in the summer, but maybe it's not until next year. No one knows. It's really hard to get a read on what Rockstar is doing. And what about the deal that they made, the Rockstar acquisition? What about that acquisition was set up in a way where Strauss does not have the visibility over that business? They have complete autonomy, 100%. A lot of these deals were made that way. Even when Blizzard was first acquired by Activision, they had that autonomy for a long time until they didn't. But Rockstar, given their success and their prowess in building hit after hit and being very successful at what they do, they've maintained that autonomy forever. And so they are locked away in New York City in a high rise right now. And no one comes in or out of that stuff with information about what's going on out there. That leak that happened maybe six months or eight months ago was unprecedented for Rockstar, in which they actually got video out. That just doesn't happen with that company, period. Super interesting. Yeah. Just to see the different dynamics, because when you do own multiple 
creators, publishers, studios under one brand. They can each have their own individual approach and culture and all of that. And I think from the outside, at least from the cheap seats over here, you didn't fully appreciate it until you learn more about it. And they also get significant rev share too. They're optimizing around their rev share as well to give to their team, right? So they get a percentage of every dollar profit, right? So um, that's that's very hard to replicate across the entire portfolio of studios. So it's very unique for Rockstar. Is there a risk that a new console is introduced? Like how much visibility do they have over new consoles coming and just aligning things with console introduction? This is the big risk, I guess, in terms of expectations for this next game. Is that what you're alluding to? Because when GTA 5 came out, it was at the tail end of the last cycle. So it's the biggest possible install base of hardware. You're selling one of the best games for that generation, right? So the adoption rate is absolutely massive. So they sell 30, 40 million units in the first 12 months. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's something along those lines. And then on top of that, you got the next gen release coming out. And so the next gen was coming out basically at the same time. And so you double dip. So certain customers bought multiple copies, one for the PS4 and then one for the PS5 within 12 months of each other. And then you come out with the PC version and then you get triple dipping potentially, right? So it was like actually a perfect storm and a perfect time to release this type of game. Not to mention they were releasing their online services over that time and perfecting it and getting more, getting re-engaged people coming in to try it out again and get hooked on it, right? This time it's a little bit different because we're kind of mid-cycle. And so the install base is a lot lower than it would have been that GTA 4 release. And so they only have a certain amount of hardware units out there to sell into because it's going to be a PS5 and Xbox Series X exclusive. And so the initial sales are probably in the 25 to 30 million range. And what I worry about is that people get way too high in their expectations. And we won't see another next-gen console for another three years, maybe even four. And so they only have this basically install base to work with until those next-gen consoles come out. And the PC SKU, obviously we don't know, but that likely will be delayed at least a year after the console SKU, which is the typical thing. Anyway, so I think people don't want to get ahead of themselves in terms of expectations on the unit sell-through. There's only a certain amount of attach rate, maybe 30 40% of the existing install base that will buy GTA. Not everyone is going to buy GTA that has a console. So... But if I do the math and that it does come out in two years and there's a new console in three years, it wouldn't be the worst setup in terms of replicating what they did before, obviously with a much lower install base overall with consoles. If I'm right in my delay of the game, you may be right. You're off by a year, maybe. Not as ideal, but yes. It's possible that they could wait until a better opportunity to double dip the way they did with the original one with GTA 4. Is there a substantial cost involved with updating the title for the different consoles? Yes and no. It used to be far more complicated because they were on different architectures. But now that everything's basically a PC, both Microsoft and Sony have come out with consoles that are PC architecture. I don't want to be minimalist on this because it is very complicated, but it's not as complicated as it used to be. And then the PC SKU itself allows them the flexibility of building the game for different levels of hardware. And so that helps as well in terms of engagement and then to iterate on the game itself. When you look at the most recent GTA, just in terms of the upfront sales that they have and now the revenue associated with in-game purchases, what do you think that looks like in terms of the total that they earn from selling the actual title versus the total that they've earned from in-game over time? The amount of money that they've made on selling the game is far higher 
over the years, but the recurring revenue, if I were to guess, I would say it's like 70, 30, maybe 60, 40. That's typical. Yeah, you answered my question as to why they don't just give away the game for free and uh, generate the... Oh, wow. That has been a huge source of angst for me. People talking about free-to-play on console like it's going to be the next thing. It's the wrong market to do free-to-play. This is a premium market and you have to compete against premium games. And so, yeah, they have given away for free over the years, but only after they've sold gajillion units. It's interesting that the unit price per sale has not gone up substantially. The title would cost in the 60 to $70 range now? The new price being set now is 70 But with something like GTA, they'll have premium SKUs that go for 80 90 even $100, and people will buy it. And is there any bull case for seeing that number go even higher? As you start to mention those numbers, it's substantially higher than the $50 that I remember paying back in my day, as I'll say. But I would have expected it could possibly be over 100 at this point, given everything that's happened. Where do you think that could be over time? Is it any bit of a catalyst from a revenue perspective? Yes and no. When you're talking about premium plus type things where you're buying the game basically in essence for 60 or $70 and then you're adding in a layer of DLC, of currency, etc. People that are going to be really engaged with the GTA Online because only a small portion of the actual audience that buys GTA is involved and engaged GTA Online, right? Again, the free-to-play business model is very small group of people that are actually spending insane amounts of money. So you have to keep that in mind. So those type of SKUs will do well with that audience, but it's a smaller percentage of that audience. What I'm hoping, again, from a design perspective, what I'm hoping for GTA this time is, first of all, they learn a lot from their last GTA in terms of how to monetize what the content cadence is supposed to be, how to monetize the audience and optimize against the spenders. And then also the technology behind GTA 4 was so bad in terms of load times and all the issues around matchmaking. And it was horrific. The fact that they've made so much money is kind of remarkable. So the new technology with the better hard drive, the SSDs and better load times, hopefully they'll be able to optimize and make it a much better experience and have more mechanics to monetize. And again, what I'm really hoping for, which I don't think will happen, this would be really bullish for them, is they start to do more pay to win pay to progress type mechanics, which will send the spend depth much higher. And that'll like really leverage the core players to spend more. And that would be a huge boon for them in terms of revenue per user. I know in mobile, a lot of the advertising actually is just the closed loop system. So it's not necessarily advertising for products, it's advertising for other games. I always wondered if the advertising market could exist in the console industry as well, whether it's product placement or something else. GTA feels like one of those games where you could actually see those things to show up, putting aside the mature rating and all dynamics that go into that. But I'm just curious if that's a business line or a segment that they've ever tapped into. You mentioned why most likely that won't happen because of the mature content. And I don't think Coca-Cola would be really interested in branding with GTA. So those brand placements, probably not. Maybe certain brands. Yeah, there's brands for everything, but fair enough. That makes sense. Advertising actually within console games is something that we've been looking at for decades. When I was at EA and we actually tried it a few times, Massive, I think, was acquired by Microsoft ages ago to try to take advantage of that. It kind of went away, but now it's coming back in full force. And there's like a couple of companies that are actually working on building that within games to do banner advertising and other like much more better placed advertising. So we'll see. GTA, I don't know if it's a really great fit. Because the one thing about GTA is you want to be immersed in the world. And by any type of advertising within the game, that pulls you out of the immersion, right? 
And what's the call to action? But anyway, there are people much smarter than me working on this type of thing, and we'll see it more and more. But again, the mature nature of GTA makes it a little bit tough. Shifting gears to 2K, I think you outlined the bull case for why that franchise could continue to do well. I'm curious in terms of the license itself with the NBA, is there anything unique there in terms of what that contract costs them, whether it comes up for renewal, how often it comes up for renewal? What are the dynamics behind that? Basketball is an open license. like It's not an exclusive with 2K, like the NFL was for a while with EA, and then FIFA was, but ultimately that went away for EA. There's no competition out there. EA has been trying to make a new game. And actually, I don't know what is happening with that because supposedly it was supposedly coming out this year. And they said to investors of clients of mine that they're not giving up on it, but it seems like they're giving up on it. So I'm not too worried. I will say this is this is one thing that people don't really quite understand about these licenses that even though the Take-Two is the license store and NBA is licensee, the reality of it is, is that 2K actually does a lot for the brand of NBA, the similarly that did a lot for the FIFA brand in terms of making it as popular as it is, right? It's a more of a partnership than a licensee licensor relationship. Now, that's not to say that NBA could come at them with like insane terms. That's possible. But I think there is a partnership there. And I think that's less of a risk. Makes sense. If we just compare those two titles from a margin perspective, profit perspective, however you would think about it, do you think there's drastic differences between those two? And then we can talk about the rest of the catalog after that. I actually don't think so. And the reason I say that is because the type of licensor 15 to 20% that you're giving to the NBA and the Players Association is probably very similar to the percentage you're giving away to Rockstar, right? So at the end of the day, from an EBIT perspective, I bet they're very, very similar. And what is an ideal EBIT margin for a title? Obviously, there's a lot of moving parts. And I know it's difficult when you have the beginning of the life with the title sales versus the in-game purchases. But how would you even think through that in terms of any type of return metrics, profitability metrics, margin metrics for a title? I would say like 40%. 30 to 40% for these type of businesses. But over the life, it gets complicated because the dev costs are so front-loaded, right? Capitalized, et cetera, et cetera. But it's probably a higher margin ongoing, but lower margin if you look at it holistically. So 30 to 40%. And then the rest of the console PC portfolio of titles, is there anything else in there that you think is an attractive name that could emerge as a third horse in the race? This is part of my risks with Take-Two as a whole, right? Is that Activision and Take-Two in particular just did not do a good job of investing in other studios, right? Whether it's different Rockstar teams or other studios. And so they really don't have much at all other than GTA and 2K at Take-Two. There are other games in the portfolio that are coming, but they're just not going to be profitable. Not nearly as profitable as GTA and 2K. Like if they make money, it'll be surprising. Like Judas is the game from Levine that's coming out. And then finally, we have the Gearbox guys who are make Borderlands. And Borderlands has been one of the bigger franchises from Take-Two, but they don't own it, right? They're only a distributor of record. It's really the Gearbox guys, which were acquired by a terrible, terrible, terrible acquisition by Embracer. <laughs> and so they own that team, but not that franchise. So it's very unclear. And Embracer's collapsing as we speak. So I don't know what the guys at Gearbox are going to do, et cetera. But that could be an interesting game going forward. But other than that, everything that they're doing doesn't make any sense. They came out with some casual sports 
strategy, which is some fever dream of some guy in Marin that wanted to like make casual sports. That's not the business that we're in. We're in a AAA business. So it never made sense. They had some success with the Lego racing game. But other than that, making a tennis game or making an arcade basketball game, none of this makes any sense, right? This is not the business that we're in. And then the company will keep saying the same bullshit over and over again, that they have like 52 games planned for the next three years, including 17 immersive core games. It is just nonsense that they keep pushing this narrative, but they don't have the teams to do what they're suggesting. It is just a narrative. That's all it is. And I guess you should keep track of it, but don't expect much contribution from it is the way I would look at it or the way I talk to my clients about it. Putting aside the casual sports games, which it sounds like there's an obvious issue there. But do you think there's other AAA titles that exist within the portfolio that just don't have the marketing budget? What do you think stops them from having another hit game? They don't have any teams. That's it. They have not built the teams that can build contemporary AAA. They just did not invest in building new game teams that can create contemporary games. That's just full stop. I know with EA, they have a software or some type of design studio that's in-house that can be used by all the different teams. And you can tell me how quality that is versus just pure marketing language. EA did the smart thing. They bought Respawn, right? And they bought that management team and that group. And Vincent Bell, he's an amazing operator and studio leader, which is the hardest roles to fill within these type of organizations. Like It's really hard to manage creatives, but he has that credibility. He's been down the block a bunch of times. And he's created like four or five studios under him that are actually creating AAA content, including the Star Wars game, including the Black Panther game and the Iron Man game. They're working on a Medal of Honor game. That's what Take-Two should have done ages ago, right? But it's too late now. It's really hard to build these type of teams there. So I think EA has been really smart in reinvesting some of their revenue and earnings into building out these teams to build more content, right? They just don't have the capability that I see within Take-Two to actually do anything. The other thing would have been, which again, they have no control, is that Rockstar creates a second team to help build something with Midnight Club, some with their older IPs, Max Payne or whatever, but that's not happened. They've consolidated to one team as well, like I said earlier. And what does a team look like in terms of size? I'm just curious. Early concept is like 10 to 20, but pre-pro is 50 to 60, and then you go up to full production at like 200. So it evolves over time. But those teams need to be built up and have experience working together and working on games, right? Which takes a long time. So I guess with something like film, we've actually seen the number of titles that are released each year come down quite a bit. And you've seen a removal of a lot of those mid-budget films that used to be made that are no longer made by the studios. And there's various different reasons from that. It sounds like, in your view, from an investment perspective, that's what would make more sense to do here. Do you think that's specific to Take-Two because of the teams, or do you think that's a broader industry dynamic? Historically, when I was the first at EA, we were building like 30 games a year. Now, if they do six games, that's a lot. And again, the focus has been on revenue per user as opposed to tons of games trying to expand the audience. The market matured. Media matures in that way, right? Until new platforms emerge, right? Gaming is no different than even movies and television, which kind of consolidated to a few studios, right? Or to a few networks until Netflix came out. And then that changed the game, right? A new platform came and created much more opportunity. But for games, it's again, it's been like these 200 million users that continue to buy consoles that is the target market. And the game makers have just consolidated to fewer and fewer franchises. And mobile is evolving in that way, too, where it is 
almost a winner take all type thing where certain types of genres are the main revenue drivers of the business. And that's been the way it's been since almost 2014. In mobile, does the margin profile look similar to those 40% EBIT margins? Unfortunately not, particularly for Zynga, which was acquired by Take-Two. So for individual products that scale, absolutely. So for something like King's Candy Crush, I think they are at 40% margins and certain big games do scale in that way. The problem with Zynga, and I think we'll get into it a little bit, is that, yeah, they bought this company with a gajillion products that some are more profitable than others for sure. But overall, the business, I think, was like a 15% margin business at best. Talk a little bit about the titles there. Do they have any core IP or crown jewels that sit within that portfolio? And in your mind, how similar will mobile be to console where it is core IP? Or is it a different market where you'll just see recycling and new games tested out more frequently? Well, because game development costs a lot less in mobile, I think there was a lot more opportunities to experiment and throw out there and see what sticks. But my opinion of mobile has changed now is that user acquisition cost is so expensive Game development is getting more and more expensive, but you spend more on user acquisition than you do on game development, right? Which is not the case for console. So it is consolidating amongst the big publishers and the big games. And Zynga does have some amazing games that they've acquired over the years. And so those are like the cornerstones of their business in terms of what's generating all the profit and the revenue for that matter. The problem is, is that all those core businesses are falling apart right now because IDFA and all these privacy issues. And Take-Two bought this company at the peak. It was like the most idiotic acquisition in terms of timing I've ever seen in my career. It was so bad. People in the industry were just like, what is he doing? Why would he ever acquire this company? And I've been covering Zynga since the beginning. And I was really content with what Frank did with the business. But it was clear eight months before the acquisition, that they were looking down the barrel of gun of no growth for the next like three or four years, and then they get acquired for a premium. It made no sense at the time. But back to your question. The big franchises that matter for them is Merge Dragons, Empires and Puzzles, and Toon Blast, and Toy Blast, and Golf Rival to some degree. These are all the acquisitions that Zynga made over the years that drive the majority of their revenue. And if you look at all of them, they're all down 15 to 20% year on year after a shitty year last year. It is Armageddon over at Zynga. The fundamental problem with this is as revenue declines, in order to maintain the profitability, which was shitty to begin with, you start cutting costs, right? And when you start cutting costs, the only thing that you really can cut once you cut a lot of the people is cut UA. And the minute you start cutting UA, and this is a UA-driven business, then revenue suffers, and then revenue goes down, and then you get in this death spiral. Now, having said all that, I think a lot of that's priced into the stock. If you had listened to me a year ago when this acquisition was announced, I would have told you all of this then and exactly what I said actually happened. But I think everyone's kind of realizing that and no one gives a F, right? All they care about is GTA and rightfully so to some degree. Hopefully they can stabilize this business, but it's not looking good. I'm curious, just in terms of the acquisition, obviously the price was way out of bounds. Is it still a valuable asset? You described the death spiral there, which can be incredibly destructive and almost negative value. And you can argue that just the attention that it requires could detract a lot of value. But in your mind, is there value somewhere in that Zenga asset once it stabilizes? No, they gave up 40% of their company, 40%, right? Whoever was doing spreadsheets and PowerPoints on this thing, 
clearly had no idea what was going on in the mobile game market. There was a reason why it was at $6 before this acquisition. If they had waited three to six months, they would have gotten it for half as much. Majority of the analysts in the space could have told you that. So I don't know what they were thinking. Really, I have no idea. So is there value? No, it's a declining business. You have to compare this to King, right? And I hate to bring up King on this because King was bought for like 10 times EBIT while Activision was trading at 20 times EBIT. And at that time, Bobby did this absolutely massive multiple arbitrage and it was a genius acquisition at the time. But even after that, the business actually flatlined. It wasn't doing much, but it maintained its profitability, right? So it was this cash cow that they kept on reining in. And then on top of that, they ended up growing by doing better live ops and advertising, all this stuff. This business has been, Bobby's a freaking genius, right? When it came to this sort of thing. Strauss did the exact opposite. They bought a declining asset with less profitability than their core business and continually declining revenue. So I'm imagining in my head what these McKenzie and JP Morgan guys creating these spreadsheets and these beautiful PowerPoints talking about how this is going to be multiple expanding arbitrage, whatever, and like putting all these fancy graphs up there, but they don't understand the core business. Apple destroyed it overnight and it's getting worse and worse. And all these core franchises are never going to be able to grow again. And the key thing here is they have absolutely no capability of building new games within Zynga. And this is the critical point is that they do not have extra teams building new stuff. They have no pipeline whatsoever to offset the weaknesses in their core businesses. And so this was all known. It was so obvious. It just kills me. So no, I think this is the biggest problem with this story is that Zynga is going to be this constant albatross around the neck of this company from a profitability and revenue perspective once they consolidate all their P&Ls. Do you think it makes sense for mobile and console PC publishers to be combined? Are there many synergies that exist between the two? Very, very little. No. I think Strauss had a lot of pressure to get into mobile. And as I said earlier, mobile has become like 50% of the interactive business and they really had no mobile presence. So I think he was pushed into it without really understanding it. And if you actually listen to Strauss talk all the time, he's always talking about AAA. He doesn't really like these free-to-play mechanics and he doesn't like mobile all that much, similar to the way EA, the CEO of EA, hates mobile, generally speaking. So anyway, I think he was kind of pressured into building it. And I think a lot of it had to do with the ego. Strauss is always, in my opinion, or people that I talk to say that he always wants to be as big as EA and Activision, right? And without a mobile presence, it's going to be impossible to be at the scale that EA and Activision are, right? Both of which have mobile. This was a way of almost overnight getting into mobile, but it was just the wrong acquisition at the wrong time. Qualitatively, Checking a box of mobile exposure makes sense. Everything else beyond that, the reality of the situation, point made for sure. Keeping on the consolidation topic, the acquisitions topic, Microsoft Activision, obviously big headlines. What does that mean for a take-two? My immediate assumption is it makes them a potential target. How real do you think that is? And in five years from now, will EA and take-two be independent? It's really, really hard to think that EA and Activision will be independent in the next five years. I have to imagine that as, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole of this Microsoft Activision Activision, but if that deal actually goes through, which it looks like it's going to get through, that is open. Everything's open for acquisition, at least locally, right? One clear thing is that the Chinese will not likely be able to acquire big publishers in the West for obvious reasons. But for people like Amazon, Comcast, Netflix, Apple, Disney, potentially, not probably in the short term. It's open season on gaming companies, right? Now they're expensive, but 
could be a strategic pillar for any of these companies. Right now, I think Amazon and Comcast are the ones that are the most potential to do something in this space. I think Amazon's not giving up and Take-Two makes a lot of sense for Amazon. And Comcast has some interests there as well. Savvy Group is probably the other potential that has the deep coffers to buy something like that. And that's that Saudi sovereign wealth fund that acquired Scopely recently. And they're still looking for a traditional publisher for console PC, which could be something like Ubisoft or Take-Two. EA is a little bit different in the sense that majority of their content is licensed, most of their biggest content. So it's a little bit harder. Disney would make a lot of sense for them or Amazon. And the strategic benefit to those buyers, I think with Microsoft Activision, I know it hasn't necessarily been for the strategy, which you would initially think in terms of the Xbox and maybe holding games hostage. It's quite the opposite, but would be a buyer strategy, someone like an Amazon or a Comcast in terms of acquiring a Take-Two? First of all, getting into the interactive space, which is one of the fastest growing areas of media, generally speaking. It's also leveraging the existing IP from that acquisition to do cross-media, which movies and television, which has become more and more popular with the success of Last of Us and The Witcher and numerous others that have done extremely well. And Take-Two has some great IP. Red Dead Redemption would be a great IP for movies and television. Max Payne, Bioshock. So there's tons of stuff that they could leverage. You mentioned the valuations are extremely high in terms of potentially impeding a potential acquisition. How do you go about valuing these businesses? And what is industry norm from the investment world in terms of looking at these as a traditional PE? Is there anything unique that they use to come up with valuations? I mean, it's more or less traditional PE stuff. It used to be more of a hit-driven business. So you would take peak earnings, et cetera, and then do some kind of discount on it. And that's kind of what Take-Two has to some degree, because next year, again, if GTA comes out, you consider that one of their peak earnings years. And so that's kind of what the multiple is based upon right now, or how some of the investors are looking at it. On the flip side, Activision and EA kind of have much more stable earnings. And so they traded at an ongoing multiple. And I think that makes the most sense. Or you could take an average over the next three or four years for Take-Two. But they seem to think that they can actually grow after the release of GTA through GTA catalog and online sales and other products in the pipeline. Anyway, that makes it even potentially more valuable. And I think there's actually a method that that could happen. I guess relative to the market, we said like average market multiple normalized of 15 times earnings. Have these businesses historically basically normalized off of that as the evolution of mobile or maybe not mobile, but in-game purchases allowed for secular multiple expansion. I alluded to that earlier. Historically, the multiple was a lot lower because of the hits-driven business. But now that they are kind of a SaaS business to some degree, their multiple definitely expanded to the 20 to 25 range. And they should. I mean, a lot of this stuff is very predictable. EA has grown FIFA over the last decade every year. Some higher than others, but it's still like this ongoing business. They have this core group of people that are continuing to spend and have complete loyalty. 2K is the same thing. I think we've talked about the risks quite a bit. Zynga being in the death spiral and just being in a constant strain on the business, being one of those things. Anything else that you would point to in terms of key risks here for Take-Two? My biggest worry is that People's expectations on GTA get ahead of themselves. People have to keep in mind that the install base is a lot lower that they're selling into. The total addressable market is smaller. And then there's always the software as a service risk 
there could be burnout. People may not be as interested in going into GTA that they did before, right? Or get all bent out of shape because they're all the content that they've purchased. I mean, you have to imagine people have collections, hundreds of cars, hundreds of boats, hundreds of motorcycles that they've collected and spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and thousands and thousands of hours collecting. And so now you're asking them to stop, get rid of all of that. And I know it's digital, but it's still considered an asset for these people and start over. That's a tall order. They have to manage that well. The final thing I would just say is that in order to really see an increase of revenue per user, they have to do a better job of managing the service, the online service. And that's what I'll be watching to see how well and what they do, what mechanics they have, what kind of things that they're doing in order to monetize the audience better so that they get more revenue per user. Because they're going to have to do that to offset the big install base of GTA 4. We close these conversations out with lessons or things you could take away from looking at this business and maybe apply to other businesses. seems like there's quite a bit here, actually, just in terms of lessons about capital allocation and acquisitions and getting pressured into making those deals. But what would you point to in terms of main lessons that you think you might be able to apply elsewhere? Clearly, you have to focus on the businesses that make up the majority of their earnings, right? So keep an eye on the big titles, GTA and 2K, similar EA, similar actors, et cetera. And then also you got to keep an eye on the potential downsides of businesses that aren't doing well, like Zynga. And I think you could do that for all of these publishers that are out there. And then finally, this is a, still a hit-driven business. Like Regardless of how mature it gets, there are still things that can surprise you. And so that's what makes this business really interesting from an investment perspective is because things can come out of nowhere and do extremely well. I mean, something like Fortnite was after two really failed games from Epic. Epic hadn't created a good game, a successful game for like 15 years. 15 years they haven't created a game. And all of a sudden they have the biggest game in the world. That's still possible in this world. And that's what makes this industry really interesting for both mobile and console for that matter. Always keep that in mind that you have to be keeping track of the buzz and interest along new games that are coming out. Well, Eric, this was a pleasure. Appreciate all of your insights on Take-Two specifically at the industry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 